This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here. And we have, uh, it's great to see you here if you're a guest or visiting with us uh, or returning after some time away. But we have uh, some very special guests with us today. We have Archbishop Kanishka Raffle and his wife Kaylee with us. So I thought I'd ask Kanishka to come up the front here and I'd ask him a couple of very deep, profound, tricky theological questions. See if he. Let's welcome him. <laughs> And see if he passes. Um, the first one, Kanishka, it's great, great to have you here. I think this is the first time uh, in about 40 years that an archbishop has come to St Mark's in an official capacity, so it's great that you're here. Um, I won't hold it against you, Mark. Um, and the question is, why are you a Christian? Uh, that's a great question, and I guess there are so many ways in which you could answer it. But I think... Um, now, I've been a Christian. I wasn't, I wasn't born into a Christian family, uh, so I became a Christian in my 20s, and uh, now I'm over 40. <laughs> and uh, now, I'm a Christian because I know God by His grace, something that is, humanly speaking, impossible, really. He has worked in my life. I know God, I know he knows me, and I know he loves me. So I can't help it in a way. Um, uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, compelled by love, um, speaking about his ministry. But when you begin to know the Lord, and he begins to make himself known to you, it is a, a living relationship and you cannot do otherwise. When you know the love of God, it compels you to know him more and deeper and longer. So I'm a Christian because in God's grace he made me one and he keeps me one and it's wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, I, I want to ask a more mundane question, perhaps. What does, what does an archbishop actually do? Yes, that is a more mundane question. <laughs> There's a much less interesting answer. But nevertheless, an important one. Um, uh, it's a great privilege. It's a great, great privilege to uh, serve um, the Lord and to serve the church in Sydney uh, um, as archbishop. Um, I think one of, the, one of the things that I do is um, keep reminding the church and the world, as much as I'm allowed, that Jesus is Lord, that he reigns, that he's returning, that he gave his life for our sins and he has been resurrected to glory uh, and um, to keep saying to the church, follow the Lord and to keep saying to the world, turn to the Lord for he is good. Uh, and so, uh, of course, that is what um, every minister in every church is doing. And I, I recognise and I'm so grateful that it's what all of God's people are doing in all the places where you are, that you are also doing that by your life and words and witness, pointing people to Jesus. Uh, but that only means that it is all the more important that the Archbishop 
do that. And in a sense, uh, I hope and pray uh, to give a lead in that way. Um, and I suppose the next most important thing, or the thing that is perhaps closest to my heart, is the ordering of the ministry, uh, that uh, we need to see um, people uh, equipped for the works that God has prepared for them to do in advance. One of the really glorious things about the Diocese of Sydney, I think, is its very long history of uh, biblically informed, prayerful, energetic lay people, as we call them, or just people, actually, is what we mean. <laughs> people uh, like you, uh, who know the Lord and who live to serve and praise him. And from amongst this group of people, this wonderful community, and it's such a pleasure for me and Kaylee to go around to churches from one part of the diocese to another and see these little communities uh, of, uh, of Anglican Christians <laughs> distributed throughout the city uh, and, our, and our district and our diocese, which goes far beyond the city, of course, um, uh, pursuing lives of faithfulness and fruitfulness. It's so glorious to see that. But from among these people, we pray that God would be continuing to raise up those who will serve him in cross-cultural mission, but especially from the Archbishop's point of view, who will serve him in the, in the uh, ministry of the church. And to see those people uh, trained at Moore College to be released into service as ordained people or lay people um, serving in that way, that's a key role that the Archbishop has. And one of the ways in which the office of the Archbishop seeks to promote and prosper the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Well, we're about to hear from God's word as we have it read and then, then as Kanishka preaches. So uh, let me pray. A bountiful God, we thank you for planting, out, planting in us the seed of your word. By your Holy Spirit, help us to receive it with joy and to live according to it, that we may grow in faith and hope and love. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. To invite Amelia to come and read. Thanks, Amelia. First um, reading is taken from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 17. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who 
who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Hear the word of the Lord. The second reading comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verses 8 to 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Hear the word of the Lord. Uh, well, good morning again. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's a very great pleasure uh, and privilege to be joining you today, and uh, I'm very grateful for the warm welcome that uh, Kaylee and I have received uh, and for the invitation of the Rector to be with you. Um, if I may quote the Apostle, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but I've been prevented from doing so until now. So uh, why don't we pray together? Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for every good gift that you give to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of this moment to share together and pray, Father, that in your mercy you would bring your word to our hearts in the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that we might see Jesus, love him and serve him gladly until he comes. Amen. Uh, well, I'm delighted uh, that you've begun a series uh, on the majestic letter to the Romans, which I think can fairly be said to have had an epochal effect on Western history, alongside, of course, its eternal impact in the lives of countless millions who have been led by the Apostle through the letter to the mountaintop so as to survey the panoramic majesty and breathtaking 
horizons of God's grace in the gospel of his son that are placarded before us in this letter. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Isn't God good? And isn't he glorious? Now, this passage that we're looking at uh, this morning is full of Paul's personality, full of his emotion. This isn't always true, uh, certainly not of the rest of the letter, although uh, it reappears um, at the end, if not earlier. Uh, But 18 times in these first 10 verses that we're looking at today, the apostle uses the word I or my. It's full of affection and personal disclosure. And though Paul is yet to visit the church in Rome, and he didn't plant this church, it reeks with authentic affection and concern. In verse 15, the apostle says, I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. And that's what we hear in this whole passage. Eagerness. I thank my God because of your faith, verse 8. How constantly I remember you in my prayers, verse 10. I pray that at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you, in verse 10 again. I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift and we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, in verse 11. You can taste the eagerness in his words. Now, I wonder if eagerness is a word you would use to describe your spiritual temperature. Uh, And given the weather today, I reckon you are pretty eager. Good on you. Uh, Perhaps you've been a Christian for a very long time. Perhaps you are just dipping your toe into spiritual waters and trying to work it all out. And if that is you, I'm so glad you're here. I'm just a blow-in. Please come back next week when the real thing is on. Paul says, this is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you. Now, isn't this refreshing? Isn't this just what we need to hear? Because apart from anything else, after two years of COVID and with uh, winter power costs rising, and with war in Europe, not to mention whatever the personal circumstances in which you currently find yourself. Eagerness, especially spiritual eagerness, may seem a little foreign and a little distant. I wonder if our times, and maybe even our discipleship, our spirituality, is not characterised more by reluctance and hesitancy or weariness and uncertainty or anxiety than it is by eagerness. There are many reasons why it might be so, valid reasons not to be glibly dismissed. But can I say, this little passage from Romans, I think, offers us a tonic holds out a picture of apostolic eagerness that is surely intended to offer a pattern 
and an encouragement to us, as it must have done for its first readers. The Christians in Rome were utterly marginal. In a city uh, perhaps close to a million people, Paul mentions just a handful of house churches. The Christians had already been expelled under Claudius and were now only just beginning to return and regroup under Nero. And little did they know, nor Paul, that when he would finally meet them, Paul would be in chains. So this letter must have been a great tonic. I want to talk about eagerness, explained and applied. So firstly, eagerness explained. Uh, Paul gives several grounds for his eagerness um, to see them and to share with them the gospel. Uh, Let's see how we go. Firstly, in verse 14, he says, I am obligated both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. The first source of his eagerness to preach the gospel to them is that he's obligated. He's under a sacred trust. He encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and the Lord Jesus made him apostle to the Gentiles. It's quite, it's quite moving, actually, and poignant that he says, I'm obligated to Greeks and non-Greeks. Uh, he doesn't so much mean Greeks and, and Jews, um, as he usually means. Uh, he really seems to mean the sort of cultured elite and uh, the barbarians, as the older translations used to say, which were less polite than the new translation, which just says non-Greeks. The elite and the rest, the wise, a moral category, actually. He's obligated. The gospel was entrusted to him, not for his own sake, but for the sake of the world. He's eager to preach to them, to discharge a sacred trust. That's the first reason for his eagerness. Then in verse 16. Now, verses 16 and 17... Uh, the commentaries will tell you these are the these are the headline verses for the whole letter, and so the, uh, the 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 riches and the depths of significance in these verses will be unpacked in the following weeks. But I just want to focus on this personal dimension, the, the what they provide to us about Paul's eagerness. Verse sixteen: For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For the gospel is the power of God. For in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed. So let's think about each of those. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, Let's remind us what the gospel is. You looked at the uh, opening verses of the letter last week. The gospel, in a sense... Uh, it's a normal word, it means an announcement, um, good news, uh, perhaps a little more specifically, it is the proclamation of a royal victory, or as Professor David Seckham says in his book, an announcement of regime change. In Romans, the gospel is the gospel of God, verse 1 says, a proclamation concerning God's son, verse 3 says. Humanly speaking, he's descended from King David, but in the power of God's spirit, raised from the dead, he's son of God, not a statement about the Trinity as much as about Jesus' authority 
the divinely appointed, eternal and glorious King, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ our Lord. Regime change. Now, when Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel, he's aware that there, for many, the gospel is a shameful thing. In Rome, Caesar was lord and king. It was treason to give allegiance to another king. But the king to whom Christians gave allegiance was not a mighty general, not a conqueror, a carpenter. And worse, he'd been crucified under Pontius Pilate. Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Corinthians... We preach Christ crucified, foolishness to Gentiles, a stumbling block to Jews. Nothing intellectually appealing or winsomely persuasive about this story of the man nailed to a cross, naked, weak, humiliated. The resurrection was not only foolishness to Gentiles, it was distasteful because they believed it was the soul liberated from the body that connected with the divine, not the body made to live again. And for the Jews, crucifixion meant God's curse, not victory. Recently, I had lunch with an eminent Jewish lawyer. Kanishka, he said to me, the Messiah cannot be crucified. And in our day too, there is reason for being ashamed of the gospel. It is unremittingly and unapologetically supernatural. The resurrection from the dead, not a metaphor, not a symbol, not a motif. Physical, objective, historical, essential. And the way of Jesus, self-sacrifice, Humility, service, forgiveness, holiness. These are not the virtues that we most prize in our culture. And in practice, they look weak and foolish. But if you're tempted to be ashamed of the gospel, be encouraged. It's not a new phenomenon. The gospel of Christ crucified and risen, unattractive, unconvincing, unbelievable. Paul's not ashamed. Why not? Verse 16 again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. The God whom we meet in the Bible is a God of immense power. From the first page of Scripture, we learn that he is able to bring worlds into existence merely by speaking. And the gospel is an announcement, words concerning God's Son, declared king by his life and death and resurrection. And the apostle tells us this gospel is the place where we can experience God's power, God's power to save. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew 
and then for the Gentile. No wonder Paul is eager to preach the gospel. No wonder he's not ashamed. It's God's power to bring salvation and it's available to everyone equally. The gospel is not a weak thing, not a puny thing, not an optional thing. It's the no-shame gospel. It liberates us from fear and guilt and shame. It fills us with truth and life and love and hope. The gospel is powerful to save. The Apostle Paul was born Saul of Tarsus, a privileged man of learning and influence. He was headed to Syria to murder the Christians there piously, when he met the risen Christ in a vision on the road to Damascus and encountering Jesus transformed Saul forever. He became a leader of the sect he formerly hated. He suffered greatly for the sake of proclaiming the lordship of the crucified Messiah. He demonstrated in his ministry that God's purposes were not limited to the Jewish people, but embraced all the peoples of the earth. And what he wrote, the Spirit sealed as scripture. And the power of the gospel to save and transform remains as powerful today as it was 2,000 years ago. I recently heard a fabulous story about a Somalian man who walked into a Melbourne church where a friend of mine is pastor. He heard the prayers being said for his own country. He was so astonished to hear Christian prayer for his Muslim nation that he immediately went to speak to the person who had prayed. He joined an inquirer's course and later gave his life to Jesus Christ. He'd been a devout follower of Islam all his life. But in the gospel, he encountered the power of God to save. Actress Anna McGann has written the story of her life and faith in the book Metanoia. Her journey to healing began as she was welcomed into an ordinary church in an ordinary suburb where ordinary people loved her and welcomed her and encouraged her to read the story of Jesus in the gospels for herself. She says this, I was so rejected and broken and Jesus just disarmed me because it was so personal. This person sort of came out of the page and was on my side. I felt like I had an ally in Jesus when I didn't have anybody on my side. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel for it's God's power of salvation and available to everyone. First the Jew and then the Gentile. In Paul's language, that means everyone. The gospel is from God for the world. Anna McGann again says, I wrote what I experienced. It was strange but also beautiful and profound. I wanted to show that what happened to me isn't because I'm in any way special. God is accessible to everyone. And every Christian in this building this morning has a story of coming to Jesus and coming to know how his gospel is God's power to bring salvation. And you may still be, your story is, may still be unfolding. Undoubtedly it is for everyone. But to meet Jesus, to trust in him, is to know his saving power 
and his transformation. The gospel is personal, but it's not a matter of mere private opinion. It's objective historical reality. It's not a philosophy of life. It's a relationship with Jesus. It's not bland moralism or spiritual self-help. It is good, good news. The power of God that brings salvation. Paul's eager to preach the gospel. He's under obligation. He's not ashamed. The gospel is God's power to save. And lastly, because in the gospel, in the gospel God's righteousness is revealed. Verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, the apostle has much more to say about the righteousness of God. Chapter 3 will spell it out in great detail. The righteousness of God is a way of talking about what God is doing in the world and a way of talking about what God does for us, forgiving us our sin clothing us with the righteousness of Jesus as we put our faith in him. Jesus lives the perfect life that we cannot live and in his death he pays the debt we owe but cannot pay. By faith we are united to him so that his death is accepted for our sins and his life, his perfect life of obedience is credited to us so that God declares us right. Jesus bears our guilt and we are clothed with his dignity by faith. By faith, not by our works. So there's no room for boasting or pride about our moral achievements which are puny and compromised and incomplete. And yet at the same time there's no reason for despair because the work of Jesus to save us is perfect and spotless and glorious and is credited to everyone who puts their faith in him. Everyone who opens an empty hand before the Lord Jesus to receive Mercy receives mercy and is filled. It is good news. Four explanations for Paul's eagerness. One implication I want to leave you with. Eagerness applied. Paul says, for all these reasons, he's eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. That is, he wants to preach this gospel message to people who are already Christians. Not because they're lacking in something. He wants to share with them some mutual encouragement. He wants to encourage them and he wants to be encouraged by them and the instrument of this mutual encouragement is the gospel. What is the antidote to our reluctance? What is the antidote to our hesitancy, our anxiety, our weariness, our shame? 
If you think the gospel is a series of short uh, propositions that lead a person to repentance and faith in Jesus, well, you're not mistaken, but you are too limited in your view. The gospel concerns the miraculous birth, the spotless life, the atoning death, the glorious resurrection, the triumphant ascension, the present reign, and the imminent return of Jesus. The gospel concerns all that God has promised us in Scripture concerning His Son and all that He will do for us and for the world now and into the future and into eternity through Jesus the Son. The gospel is an inexhaustible source of truth and life and light and hope in our gloomy and desperate and shriveled world, so indifferent to injustice and neglectful of others and equally ignorant and contemptuous of God. Here's my point. Once, uh, since we have a no-shame gospel, that is God's power for salvation for those who believe, which reveals God's righteousness in saving the guilty. Let us seek by all possible means to speak this gospel to one another, to offer one another mutual encouragement in the knowledge of Jesus, to speak to one another of him, the power of his grace, the beauty of his truth, the wisdom of his word, the majesty of his person, the tenderness of his love, the constancy of his prayer, the gentleness of his correction, the gift of his spirit, the faithfulness and trustworthiness of his lordship. Lord, make us eager to speak this gospel to one another so that we may be mutually encouraged in each other's faith. Would it not be a wonderful indicator of spiritual eagerness that we speak to one another and pray for one another in this way so that in God's grace, like the little Roman church, the faith of St Mark's Darling Point might be known in all the world, not to our glory, but to the glory of Jesus and that every person who is part of this community might say humbly, gratefully, boldly, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to bring salvation to everyone, everyone who believes. May it be so. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.